Good morning. Buenos días. Bienvenidas, bienvenidos a todas y a todos. Welcome to everyone. You made it. Praise God. Some of you made it this morning with an achy body. Some of you made it this morning a little bit cold. Some of you are maybe still in a food coma after a big dinner on Thursday. Some of you came because this is your habit and your routine. This is what you do every week. But either way, I'm so happy you're here. I'm so happy to worship with you, and I welcome you. A couple of weeks ago, we tried something where we all tried sitting in like maybe these first three pews. We sing a little bit better that way. We get a little cozier. So I'm going to encourage all of us right now to please stand up if you're in the back and move forward. We're going to sit together in these first three pews. And when you get there, open your red book. Uh, sing the story to page two, Maranantakam. Please find the Purple Sing the Story book. Quinn is already now. It's number two in Purple Sing the Story. Uh, please sing along in the refrain. I invite you to sing the melody on the top line. If you'd like to try to harmonize, that's fine, but just staying on the melody is great too. And then our vocal group up here will sing the verses, but please come in and join every time we get to the refrain. And we'll start with the refrain with everyone. Today is the first Sunday of Advent, 
This is the time of the church year when we wait. We wait for our Savior. We wait for comfort. We wait to trust. We wait for joy. We wait for Jesus. Join me in prayer as we begin our worship service today. Gracious God, join us here this morning as we wait for you to come. We wait for you to bring us comfort in our despair. We wait for healing in our weakness. God, we wait for your salvation. We pray that we would trust you evermore as we worship together this morning. Amen. We are going to continue worshiping in the blue book, page 176, Comfort, Comfort, O My People, and we invite you to stand for this one. take the insert to the bulletin, Mountain of God, and I invite you again to leave this on the pew when you're finished singing it, and we will continue to recycle it before the new hymnal comes out. This will be in the new hymnal, it's my understanding. But until then, when we want to sing it, we can recycle the paper and keep using it. There is a page
We have so much to be thankful for. We have blind who can see, weary who can rest, good news for the poor, freedom for the oppressed. We are so grateful for God's provision. This weekend I got to spend time with my grandfather who they put into hospice, home hospice this weekend. We spent a good part of the weekend thinking about so much to be thankful for even as uh, my grandfather enters these last weeks and hours of his life. So today in our worship service, it's also appropriate to confess the places where we need a savior. We're thankful for this scene above us where yes, God came to us in flesh, but there are still places where we are groaning. Some of us celebrated American Thanksgiving this weekend and remembered our thankfulness. And then the very next day, Black Friday happened. You have heard about Black Friday, right? You've seen it on the news. Maybe some of you even participated in Black Friday. It's the day where stores open at odd hours of the morning. I've heard like three in the morning or earlier. Um, and people flood through the doors to go and spend money on the latest product that's being sold. And if you have seen it on the news, you know that sometimes on Black Friday, people in these stores even get into like fights, conflicts over the last TV on sale. You might have heard of people who are literally trampled to their death as stampeding people come in to buy stuff. So last week I heard that in the 1980s, the average American bought 12 new items of clothing a year. And today, the average American buys 68 new items of clothing a year. So think about that, okay? In just a few years, we've completely increased the amount of items of clothing we buy. And 80% of that clothing uh, that we throw away about every average American throws away about 80 pounds of clothing a year. 80 pounds, it's like a small child. 80% of that ends up in the landfill. And so this need that we have to buy new and consume <laughs> is destroying us. This is the world we live in. We need a savior. Join me in silence as we bring these groanings to God. I invite you to look at this image that we have above us. Image of the nativity of God who came to earth in flesh. God who came to us to bring us salvation, the very salvation we need to save us even from ourselves. And sisters and brothers, I have good news for you this morning. The salvation is here. 
It's here as we join together in community to worship God who came to us, just like us, walked around. And the crazy thing about it is that brought us salvation because Jesus taught us a new way to live, a new way where we are not slaves to being consumers, but we can create, not so much to take, but to give, not so much to want, but to love, and to love freely. And so this morning, I invite you to share that love with each other. Please stand and greet your neighbors, saying the peace of Christ be with you, and responding. La paz de Cristo esté contigo. your seats, I invite our friends Benny and Rihanna and Ron to come forward for a special blessing. Are we on? Can you hear me? Excellent. Um, on behalf of the Jubilee House Support Committee, uh, we're here to bless Benny and Rihanna. But before we do that, uh, we'd like to hear a little bit about what your plans are uh, after today. So, um, yes, so we are moving to my home country of Germany uh, in four weeks, but we're going to Winnipeg, to Rihanna's home country, um, before then, so we'll leave in two weeks. And uh, in Germany, I will be doing an internship in a church. Um, some of you might know the church, a Mennonite church in Regensburg, uh, where Lisa and Wilhelm Unger are pastors. They're doing stuff with Mennonite World Conference, too. Um, they have a Ringenberg house uh, as part of the church. I'm curious to find out the history. Um, and um, what are you going to do, Rihanna? I'm going to be learning German. <laughs> Yeah. And, and I'll finish up my studies at AMBS online, and then hopefully after that also do pastoral work. Well, your, your season of service at Jubilee House has offered refreshing and generous hospitality. You have met the challenges of launching a ministry and directing re renovation. You've been creative in welcoming residents and building relationships. 
You've been flexible as we've tried to shape the work of Jubilee House. Your roots have gone deep into the soil of Elkhart and the ministry of Jubilee House. May you now go forth to new and fruitful work, abundant and flourishing. We pray that according to the riches of God's glory, you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through God's spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So let's pray for Benny and Rihanna and please extend your hands in blessing. We humbly place Rihanna and Benny in your hands, O Lord. Keep them and preserve them in all health and safety of body, mind, and soul. Give them balance and rhythm in relationships, work, and rest. As they walk through the good times and hard times, give them fellow travelers and keep their souls whole. We entrust Rihanna and Benny into your loving care, knowing that you are always the companion on the way. Shelter and protect them in their work and recreation, in challenges and in rejoicing, in their coming and going in support of each other. We release their gifts into your river of love and justice, flowing out to the city of Elkhart and beyond, doing justly loving mercy and walking humbly before you. Amen. And according to the riches of God's glory, may the Holy Spirit equip you both with everything good to do God's will, strengthened in the inner being with power through the Holy Spirit, in service to community and in God's mission to the whole world. Go in peace. It's children's time. So if you are young or young at heart, come on forward for a special message from David. Pass around the basket. If any of you have an offering to share, to, to, you can put that in. And if you don't, what we do is touch it. We say to, to touch it and bless it. And what we mean by that is actually you say a quick prayer to say that may the money that is given be used to bless the lives of others. So we'll come around. There we go. You can just touch it and bless it. Yeah. And then when you do that, you're praying good things for those who will be helped by this. Well, have you ever noticed that adults can get awfully busy? Like they have many things that they're doing and sometimes they get so busy when your kids, it can feel like they don't even really see you because they're busy trying to do stuff, and, and they do have many responsibilities, and that's real. But 
that's not, it, and, and uh, the strange thing is when people grow up to become adults, sometimes they forget what it was like when they were kids. You would think we would remember better, but sometimes we have to really take time to remember, or we can forget that, because we think, oh, the things we're doing as adults are so important. How, uh, <laughs> well, that must feel better, yes. The, um, this, this morning, we're, uh, Pastor Steve is gonna be talking about some things that, uh, that to help us understand better what Jesus was meaning when he was teaching some things. But one thing I want us to keep in mind as we're listening to that, and he's going to include the word, uh, the word judgment. Do you know what the word judgment means? Or to judge something? You know what that means? An idea? It's, 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 it's to decide if something is good or bad. Uh, and it, it is, uh, sometimes it gets used not just to decide whether some specific thing or some, something we do is good or bad, but also to decide whether people, sometimes people decide are people themselves good or bad. And, and so, Pastor Steve's going to be helping us to, to understand that. But one, one of the things that I want us to invite you to think about this morning, and I'm going to need some help here, so I'm going to ask our pastors here, Pastor Carolyn and Pastor Steve, would you come up here? And, and Quinn, you're our pastoral intern, would you come up here? Now, I'm going to ask these people to do something that I don't think they would really do, okay? Would you, would you stand up? How many of you think if Jesus were here this morning, you would want to meet him? Yeah, yeah. And guess what? I think all these folks out here would want to meet him, too. They'd all want to shake his hand. They may want to hug him. They, may, they, they have things. They've always, they have questions. They've always wanted to ask him if he was standing right here. Well... When Jesus was teaching, when Jesus was living in, on earth and talking to, teaching his disciples and followers, people wanted to meet him also. But there, were some, there was a time when children were coming also. And guess what? The adults said, oh, Jesus is so busy. We're sorry. Come on over here. You know. Now, I am not Jesus, but I'm going to just, just imagine... <laughs> So, so, if I were Jesus, you know, you were coming to try and meet me. Come on, come and try and meet me. Yeah, look at this. They're, they're, they're saying, oh. And you know, what, you know what Jesus said? You know what Jesus said? Yo! <laughs> yeah, that, that's the translation of the Greek. Yo! And he said, stand aside. And he said, let the children come to me. And don't hold them back, because it is to like these that the kingdom of God belongs. And Jesus teaches us all an important lesson. Remember what I said earlier about sometimes adults get so busy they almost can't see children? Well, there wasn't anyone I can imagine who was busier than Jesus was. 
And, and Jesus says, look, don't try and protect me by saying the children should stay outside. Let the children come first, and then you will know how to come to me. So I want you to know as you listen this morning that Jesus said, yo, <laughs> let the children come to me, and that you are loved by Jesus. Okay? And you know what? Those adults who stood in the way this morning, they actually don't do that. <laughs> they actually want you to help to, to open the door for you to meet Jesus also. Let's pray together. We thank you, Lord, that you turned the world upside down and you invite us to be turned upside down with you to see things the way they ought to be. And then you declare, in the midst of people wanting to keep children away, you said, yo, let the children come to me. And you taught all of us how to come to you. I pray that you bless the children this morning. And we give you thanks for their lives. Amen. God bless you both. Okay. The scripture reading for today comes from the book of Matthew, chapters 24, verses 36 to 44. La escritura de hoy viene del Evangelio de Mateo, capítulo 24, versículos 36 a 44. But about that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son but only the Father. For as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away. So too will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be in the field, one will be taken, and one will be left. Two women will be grinding meal together. One will be taken, and one will be left. Keep awake. Therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. En cuanto el día y la hora, nadie lo sabe. Ni siquiera los ángeles de los cielos, solo mi Padre lo sabe. La venida del Hijo del Hombre será como en los días de Noé, pues así como en los días antes del diluvio, la gente comía y bebía y se casaba y daba en casamiento, 
hasta el día en que Noé entró en el arca. Y no entendieron hasta que vino el diluvio y se los llevó a todos. Así será también la venida del Hijo del Hombre. Entonces, estarán dos en el campo, y uno de ellos será tomado, y el otro será dejado. Dos mujeres estarán en el molino, y una de ellas será tomada, y la otra será dejada. Por tanto, estén atentos, porque no saben a qué hora va a venir su Señor. Pero sepan esto, que si el dueño de la casa supiera a qué hora va a venir el ladrón, se quedaría despierto y no dejaría que robaran su casa. Por tanto, también ustedes estén preparados, porque el Hijo del Hombre vendrá a la hora que menos lo esperen. The word of the Lord. Palabra del Señor. Gracias a Dios. Our preacher today is Pastor Steve. And we're going to pray for him before he preaches. God, we give to you your servant, Steve, as he brings your word. We pray that your spirit would be with him and with all of us as we hear what you have to say for us today. Amen. As Quinn said at the beginning of our service, today is the first Sunday of, Land, uh, of Advent, uh, which traditionally following the lectionary readings focuses on God's coming judgment with the return of Christ. I've heard these texts growing up, that, as we, such as we heard from Matthew 24, that one will be taken and one will be left. I've heard the teachings of judgment uh, that uh, some will be sent away to be with God for other, while others will be sent to hell. And I've been asked the question, if Christ were to suddenly uh, return today, uh, where would you be sent for eternity? These scriptures, these teachings, these questions, um, over the course of my experience, have been often used to scare me into believing in Jesus to save my soul. So during the children's moment, uh, David did something really quite wonderful, having us as he is actually embracing the children coming to him. Um, and I was in a standing in a perspective where I could see their precious little faces being received, being embraced into God's loving and kind of embrace represented by David. And the question I would ask of Jesus uh, when he returns is, really? Is this what you um, want done with your teachings in scripture, that you would use uh, scriptures and teachings in such a way to send people away forever, to be banished from your love for eternity? That's my question. And today, um, in this, my last uh, sermon as a pastor, I want to uh, challenge that traditional teaching and to present the love of God and to reconcile that with God's love, of love with uh, judgment and salvation. In his uh, book, The God-Shaped Brain, uh, Christian psychiatrist uh, Timothy Jennings relates a children's story that was told as a way of teaching about God's judgment. He said that uh, as a child, he, with other children in the church, 
gathered up front, much as we practice here at Prairie Street, and that the story began with a little boy who stole a cookie. And about that point, um, a person, uh, an adult member of the church, came uh, dressed in a robe as an angel with a clipboard and pen. And Jennings uh, describes how the story tells of various wrongs, talking back to mommy, making an ugly face, fighting over a toy. Meanwhile, while the angel dutifully recorded those offenses in her ledger. And he said that we were taught that God sends his retorting angels to follow us everywhere we go and faithfully write down every sin we commit in heaven's record books. Only by confessing our sins and asking Jesus to forgive the sins would they be erased from those heavenly ledgers. If we didn't ask Jesus to forgive our sins, says Jennings, our sins would remain in the books and at judgment, uh, when God saw them, he would punish us in hell. So then he writes of the effect that this teaching, uh, this children's story um, had on him. He said, I experienced so many restless nights, so many nightmares because of that story. Most alarming of all, I found myself afraid of God. I worried that I might forget to confess of sin and not have it erased. I didn't feel God's love as much as God's scrutiny. I didn't want to make mistakes, so I worked hard to do everything right. I paid my tithe, read my Bible, prayed three times a day, but didn't have peace. All my actions were based on fear of punishment, not out of a love of God and for people. For love does not flow where lies about God are retained, he writes. Some of you in your uh, visits uh, with me have shared about some of the teachings of the church that are not uh, unlike this, of what the church has done to teach about judgment in ways that uh, form a certain fear of, of God, of being scared of God rather than a fear that really is about revering God, as we're called to do, of actually being scared. About three weeks ago, um, I heard yet another story in this congregation when one of our um, elder adults shared with me how she was taught um, in the church to be terrified of God rather than to realize God's love for her. She related especially the practice of examination before communion that was especially uh, scary, leaving her with a sense that she is not worthy to receive communion, and if she doesn't, she's doomed. But if she takes of communion, a feeling of though that she has been unworthy, even though she's accepting, I'm doomed. And so it's kind of doomed if I do, doomed if I don't. That was the sense of going into this holy moment of receiving uh, the body and the blood of Jesus given for us. And so she says that I was baptized and became a Christian not out of love, but of terror. And then Arlene Mark last fall, when she shared her story with me, which was especially disturbing uh, to me, I asked her to share with the congregation her testimony of what she was taught in her church. 
If you've not heard Arlene's message, I strongly encourage you to listen to her June 23 uh, message that's on our website in audio. She talked about being raised in a, a very conservative Mennonite congregation that was especially uh, somber and strict, which created um, a, a certain fear and shame in her life. She said this conservative church was under the hand of a very strict bishop who presented God as just as we heard in this children's moment by Jennings of, of a God who's to, who is to be feared because of the threat of condemnation. And then to make worse things worse, uh, Arlene uh, told the story of how she was excommunicated by that bishop as a teenage girl when she met uh, the bishop in public at the post office when her mother sent her on a quick errand and the bishop saw her wearing her cape dress with short sleeves rather than the required long sleeves and how that next week she was put out of the church. Arlene describes uh, how uh, she began to wonder about God um, in this, giving the environment of the teachings of the church. It was only, as she describes it, when she was retaught at Eastern Mennonite High School that she was given what she describes um, a biblical image of God, uh, based on God's grace, mercy, and love. And she wrote, or she said to the congregation um, in June, the biblical God slowly displaced a God of condemnation. And then she quoted uh, this all-important text from uh, uh, Psalm 86 based on the ancient uh, creed of Israel describing God's nature. You, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And she said when she discovered that love of God for her, she says, this released my tormented self and my troubled soul as fear and shame gave way to God's compassionate love. It's against these toxic teachings and this religious abuse that I can almost hear Florence Nightingale speak back to Arlene's uh, bishop. You may know uh, Florence Nightingale as the founder of nursing, and that she was, but she was a very powerful woman leader. She was a, a Christian mystic and a social reformer, and she railed against pastors, uh, railed against preachers who used the teaching of judgment uh, to, to scare people into becoming Christians and who made salvation mainly a matter of the afterlife rather than on this life and of living in love for God and for others. She wrote, Nightingale wrote, I can't love because I'm ordered. Least of all can I love one who seems uh, only to make us miserable here to torture us um, hereafter. Show me that God is good and that he is lovable and I shall love him without being told. But does any preacher show this? He may say that God is good, but he shows him to be very bad. He may say that God is love, but he shows him to be hate. Referring to the way in which uh, judgment texts have often been used to scare people. Well, I want to be that preacher um, that Nightingale didn't hear that really shows God's love 
because I believe that God's love is relentless. It's unconditional. It's universal. It's unceasing. I believe that all people are loved uh, children and that God's boundless love reaches all people of all faiths around the world, throughout the universe, for all eternity. That's the nature of God's love. But how do we recognize or reconcile that love with what we read about in these judgment texts? So I want to challenge the dominant teaching of, of judgment. And what I will present uh, may be new. It may be, um, seem really off uh, to you, but it has a long teaching going back to the early church and, was a, and it was held by a number of Anabaptist leaders. I want to make a case uh, to really show God's loving intention uh, for, for salvation for all. I reject the image of a God as a, as a judge damning masses of people to hell forever. I believe this is a distortion of God's nature and intent, and this is a stumbling block to people. Florence Nightingale asked, if God punishes me forever by doing me evil, how is God better than I? That's a tough question. Or when it comes to traditional teachings about God's judgment, uh, people have these questions, you know, as I do. How can a loving God send the majority of, hu of humankind to hell to suffer endless torment? Where is the justice of being sentenced to hell forever for committing sin and not confessing Christ in this limited life? And doesn't such judgment amount to violent retribution, excessive use of force, and abuse of power? And how can God expect us to love our enemies if God tortures or annihilates his in hell? How do you answer these questions? These are questions that have perplexed me for years and years. More and more, according to polls, people answer the question by simply saying, well, there isn't a judgment, there isn't a, a hell, that these are features um, of an old cosmology that we no longer hold. But if we believe, as I do, as the Bible teaches in taking the scriptures seriously, that there is a judgment when we're held accountable for the life that we have lived, and if we believe that there is a state where there of, of separation from God, um, a following judgment, if we are, if we are not received into God's, uh, into heaven, what do we make of that? How do we answer these questions? So here's my, my shot at it. First of all, um, I don't believe that God sends anyone to hell, but that's not the nature of God's judgment, that we place ourselves there in hells of our own making. Further, and here's the, the important point, the controversial point that I hold, that I believe God's saving love reaches even into hell after death, giving people endless opportunities for eternal life to bring about what Peter describes in Acts 3.21, the universal restoration, or to bring about, as, as Paul proclaims in Ephesians 1.9, to unite all things uh, in, in him. And that if God is truly like a loving parent at judgment, wouldn't God do everything possible to save us from hell for eternal life? And if God's grace discontinues somehow for those who are lost in hell, wouldn't that contradict God's unconditional steadfast love? 
So I believe this common view of judgment and sending people to hell forever really misrepresents um, God's judgment. This complicated material I've kind of put in an insert um, in the bulletin in 10 uh, points, and I just want to, I want to touch on seven of these. Now, the first point is this, that God is love and desires that we all live in love and wills the salvation of all people. And we knew, know this uh, from, from John 3 that we grew up hearing if we were raised in the church, for God so loved the world. Or as Paul asserts, that it's according to God's good pleasure that God has uh, set forth um, a plan in Christ to unite all things in him, Ephesians 1.10. And I believe that if there's a will, there's a way, and that God will have a way to accomplish this ultimate plan that in the end all things will be united in Christ. Point two, that where, while there's the promise of salvation, promise of salvation is also the reality of hell of being separated from God or the possibility thereof because people um, are free uh, we may reject God and live in sin consequently we come under judgment in hell uh, and this like salvation begins in the present not just after death point three Judgment texts are to be read in the total context of Scripture and in light of Jesus, who, re who reveals a God of salvation, not of damnation. These texts are not future predictions, but prophetic warnings of what will happen. They, they carry this urgent message, don't let this happen to you, that living in sin has severe consequences. Point four, that these texts, these judgment texts, uh, employ two literary devices, the first of which is hyperbole. It's like a loving parent making exaggerated threats. How many of you have parents or adults working with children have made exaggerated threats? I have. You know those remote control uh, canine or dog collars? You know, you push a button, administers it. Um, I've threatened our children many times with having a, placing a dog collar and where, where Lynn and I could, could hold the remote control. Um, that's hyperbole to get our children's attention. The other device is metaphor, and even Billy Graham in his teaching uh, in, in his later life changed his mind about a number of things in very significant ways and said, I could no longer preach what I preached as in my crusades. Uh, if you listen to some of his last interviews, it's very interesting, changing mind. One of which is really trying to take um, a lot of these teachings as metaphor in metaphorical ways. And where hell is described in terms of fire and darkness. And these images of fire and darkness originate um, with a city dump um, in the Valley of Hinnom in Jerusalem. And they're meant to be figurative of alienation um, and agony. Otherwise, uh, how can there be both literal fire and literal darkness in hell? I believe that we're called to take all of Jesus' teachings seriously, especially those of judgment, but being careful not to take all of them literally. For example, cutting off body parts that lead us into sin, uh, as you've talked about, which has a long history of leading uh, people to, uh, for self-castration. Point six, judgment is not the end as if it's on par with salvation. 
that judgment is not the end, but it's like the law, as Paul describes in his letters. It functions like a disciplinarian meant to turn people who are turned away from God toward God with the aim of their salvation. That God's judgment intends to bring hell-bent people back to God for rep- with repentance. God's judgment is corrective and redemptive. It's not vindictive or, or punitive as with human retribution. And that even hell is a remedial meant to turn people from, uh, to God. And that God's judgment is like that of a loving uh, parent um, where it's done out of love, even with anger, but it's intent on reforming behavior and restoring relationship. And this is what Hans Denk, the Anabaptist uh, uh, mystic taught um, that I find real encouraging. He says, all of God's punishments, even hell, have the purpose of bringing about a lasting salvation for all humankind. This is the Anabaptist Hans Denk. I'm speaking um, in the 16th century. Denk and other Anabaptists believed in this view, which referred to as post-mortem salvation, where in hell people receive God's love and are saved. And Nuff believed this, this is really interesting, in, 19, or in the 1530 um, Augsburg Confession, in Article 17, it says, the Lutherans about the Anabaptists, we condemn the Anabaptists who think that punishment of demons and of those people whom God condemns will not last forever. That there comes a certain point um, that those who have been judged and are in hell, that comes to an end when they receive God's grace. That enough of the early Anabaptists believe that, that this 1530 document by the, by the Lutherans records it. Point nine, that God's endless love can't allow people to remain uh, in hell forever with no chance um, of salvation. That God's saving grace reaches after death and even into hell, just like it reaches uh, throughout our life here. And we witness this in Jesus' intervention on Holy Saturday. We have several scriptures that speak to this. Uh, We have a Ephesians 4, 9, and two texts in 1 Peter that describe God's redemptive work in Christ uh, in hell to save those who are alienated from God. That when he descended um, into hell to deliver those held in uh, darkness, Christ demonstrated God's unwillingness to abandon people to their destructive choices and that God's uh, grace even reaches there. And so people can remain in hell only as long as they choose to. C.S. Lewis in his uh, his creative work, The Great Divorce, speaks of this in these terms, where he says that the the doors of hell are locked on the inside, not on the outside. And then we have um, Revelation closing, where we have, um, in the image, the gates of the city are always open. They're never closed. Revelation pictures some people refusing to repent after God's uh, judgment. But it's a question, will people persistently or forever refuse God's love and thereby remain in hell? It's possible. According to Milton in Paradise Lost, when Lucifer was banished from heaven, he said, it is better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. And then according to John 3, 19 and 20, 
we have this image that there are those who draw back from the light and choose to live in darkness, even though it is their suffering. And anybody who knows the destructiveness of addictions can know how we continue to choose and again and again to, to stay um, in this. And so it, it is a possibility. Um, even so, uh, Karl Barth of this problem describes this as an impossible, impossi uh, an impossible possibility. Or St. Teresa of Avila, she said to priests in the Inquisition, oh, I believe in hell, but is reported to have turned and whispered to a nun nearby, but no one is there. You know, think about that. It's hard to believe, and along with, with St. Teresa, um, um, have a hard time believing that God would leave anyone uh, in this dreadful state of separation with no chance of deliverance. And again, with these texts that we have with Paul and with Peter, presenting how on both sides of death, we have God's saving love reaching um, and to, to God's beloved children. Paula Kello, uh, two weeks ago, presented this uh, when she was presenting Hesed of the Hebrew word for God's steadfast love. It's an unrelenting love that refuses to let go of the beloved. That's God's chesed. And this is the nature of, of God that's unrelenting and cannot let us go. And then the final point, that while there are scriptures that imply limited salvation in the end, where some persist in their rejection of God, that is one strand in scripture. But we also have another strand in scripture that speak of the claim of God's universal salvation where in the end, eventually God's grace prevails, redeeming all people for what, again, Peter describes as that universal restoration or what Paul describes as how we're in the end, all are united with, with Christ. So taken together and holding these two strands in scripture in dynamic tension, I believe that all may be saved on the end by God's love. I believe we're called to live with this hope, to live in this love and not fear. And I love the passage of, of John in 1 John 4. God is love. God has been, or love has been perfected among us in this that we may have boldness on the day of judgment. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. Abba Anthony, the founder of Desert Monasticism, at the very end of his life, writes in his little journal, um, I no longer fear God, but I know God's love for me. Brennan Manning uh, describes God's love best. Uh, Brennan Manning was a, was a Catholic priest and recovering alcoholic who knew the, the destructive hell of his own making, and he writes about this, of God's transforming love for him. God loves me as I am and not as I should be. No matter what I do, God can't stop loving me. When I am in conscious communion with the reality of the wild, passionate, relentless, stubborn, pursuing, tender love of God and Jesus Christ for me, then it's not because that I have to or I got to or I must or I should or I ought. Suddenly I want to change because I know how deeply I am loved. This past week when I was visiting with Arlene Mark again, kind of picking up on her story, 
Um, she said, oh, Steve, there's one thing I really wish I was said um, back in my message in June. I really wish I could have emphasized how God love changes us. Uh, she said this. She said, so I said, what would you like me to say? And so she wanted to add this as a PS. Uh, she says, I've often heard the trite statement, God is love. And she says, I've repeated that in conversation, but I didn't realize how much this changes one's life and way of living to really know, to realize that this God is love. And she says, God's love is the basis for our character, all our responses in life, in our relationships with others. That's God's love for us. That's God's call of love for us that makes a difference. And I think I can believe that this is the, the love that God wants us to know. And the Christian life is really about abiding in this love, in this life, and forever in the next. And it's this love that I pray will form you at Prairie Street and may be what you witness um, here in this community. For him a response, uh, I invite you to turn to number 145. Number 145. I want to read three of the verses that we will sing and invite you to think about what the, uh, the author of this uh, writes of God's uh, mercy of God's love. There's a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. There's a kindness in God's justice which is more than liberty. But we make God's love too narrow by false limits of our own. And we magnify its strictness with a zeal God will not own. For the love of God is broader than the measures of the mind and the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. Let us stand and sing of this, of God's love.
be seated. And please turn in the blue hymnal to number 185, 185, Hail to the Lord's Anointed. We'll sing verses 1 and 4, and those who are able, please stand. Just a few announcements. Uh, we heard Marie say that there are a hundred school kits, so we need all hands in the fellowship hall to put together those school kits. After that, we will be meeting here in the sanctuary to review a few items for our congregational meeting next week. And next week, we will have that meeting and a potluck. So if you came hungry today, I'm so sorry. You're going to have to go home to eat after. Receive this benediction. Sisters and brothers, go from here knowing proclaiming and living as though God has come as Jesus in flesh to bring us salvation. Jesucristo reina ya, already, now. Jesus Christ reigns. Amen. Go in peace.